This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Daniel 1 through 6 is largely historical. Daniel 7 through 12 is almost exclusively prophetical. In the second section of the book, there are four visions that are given to Daniel. The second vision is given in chapter 8 concerning the ram and the he-goat. And we talked about that last week. There was a ram that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And then there was a goat that came out of the west representing Greece that attacked the ram and greatly defeated him. And this goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. That represents the first king of the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great. And he attacked the goat, with, the ram with great speed and with great fury. And in three decisive battles between the years 334 and 331 BC, he toppled and demolished the Medo-Persian Empire and Greece became the third great world empire in Daniel's four empires. When Alexander was at the height of his power, he died. And in place of that one horn, four notable but less conspicuous horns came up on the goat's head. They represent the four generals that Alexander's empire was divided among by and large, and that was complete by the year 301 BC. And that's amazing when you consider this is all predicted, and the prophecy was given in 551 BC. And so you have the fourfold division of the third empire, the Grecian empire, 250 years after the prophecy was given, uh, which shows how amazing Bible prophecy is and how it comes from the one who um, knows the end from the beginning. James says in Acts 15, known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the world, and that's certainly true. Then we come to verses 9 through 12, and it picks up from where we left off. Daniel 8, 9 through 12. And out of one of them, remember there were four horns that came up on the head of the goat, representing four divisions of Alexander's Grecian Empire. Out of one of these horns, Daniel 11 calls this horn the king of the north, or Syria. But out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, or Israel. The eighth king in the succession of the kings of the north, one of these four horns, one of these four divisions, was a very evil ruler named Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, who greatly persecuted the Jewish people. And this horn cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Here the Host and the stars probably refer to God's people Israel. Yea, he magnified himself against the prince of the host. 
He even opposed the God of Israel himself and defied him. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Depending on which calendar you follow, in the year 165 or 164 BC, Antiochus caused the daily sacrifice on the altar of brazen sacrifice in the Jewish temple to cease. And he also desecrated the temple in many ways and uh, for all practical purposes, stopped it. And then host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. He was able to gather together in the permissive providence of God a great army to attack God's people and to cast down the truth to the ground. But as our Lord illustrated on Easter Sunday morning, the truth cast to the ground shall rise again and it practiced and prospered. Why is Antiochus Epiphanes called the Nero of Jewish history? Why is Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes called the Nero of Jewish history? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Sandy is right. Uh, Nero in AD 64, uh, who had the city of Rome burned because he wanted to take it from brick and build it in marble. And seven out of the 10 districts were burned. It was a terrible catastrophe and the crowds, the Roman people were very upset with him. And he used the Christians as a scapegoat and said they're talking about the world ending by fire. They did it. Well, Nero did it, but he tried to use the Christians as a scapegoat. And he brutally persecuted Christians, even covering some of them with wax and lighting them as torches so he could ride in this chariot as gardens. Uh, it was a terrible persecution. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was basically Nero to the Jewish people in the intertestamental period. He greatly turned on them and persecuted them. In fact, Dr. Cole says in his excellent prophetic outlines that secular history records the slaughter of up to 100,000 Jews by Antiochus and his armies. Then in verses 13 and 14, we read more about this. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto him, Daniel, the beloved man of God, was able to be among the converse of heaven. Saint means holy one, and he overheard this conversation between the holy angels. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The Jewish temple will lie desecrated and inoperative for 2,300 days, and then it will be cleansed and restored. Question, which historical period do the 2,300 days cover? What time in history is this referring to? Okay, it is a type or a picture prophecy of what the Antichrist will do to the Jewish people in the tribulation. That is true. And Daniel 11 at the end of chapter 8, we'll go into it more. Um, 
But uh, this, is, this is probably has direct reference to what happened in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. And, um, but but what, what Antiochus did uh, will be picked up a lot by, um, by the Antichrist on a greater scale someday. Uh, but uh, I appreciate that, Dave. That, that is going to be kind of a projection into the tribulation period. Um, but as far as the, in fact, I'll say a little more about the dual fulfillment of prophecy in a little bit. But uh, as far as the past is concerned, uh, where would we put the 2300 days? This is a challenging past passage. Um, William Miller, who was a Baptist preacher, applied every day to a year and uh, said that Christ would come back in 1843. And uh, he was badly mistaken. And uh, some of this goes into the early history of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Uh, but we don't believe that these years, uh, these days represent years. Um, there are two main lines of interpretation. Some say if you have 2,300 days, that's a little over six years, and they say this is the time that Antiochus's armies attacked Israel around the year um, 171 BC. And he continued to persecute them and eventually desecrate their temple and uh, do all kinds of bad things like kill a pig and sprinkle the broth over the temple area, set a, an image of the Olympian Zeus um, on the temple altar, all kinds of bad things, uh, kill women and their babies, uh, if a woman had her baby circumcised, and all kinds of bad things. But uh, basically, for a little over six years, from uh, his sending his armies to attack Israel in 171 BC, until the temple was finally cleansed and restored under uh, the Maccabees and the Jewish War of Independence uh, in 164, you basically got about a six-year period there. And some people think that's the 2300 days, the rampages of Antiochus from his attack on the Jewish people until the temple was restored and cleansed. Others point out that in the Hebrew it says 2300 evenings and mornings. And so they think that this refers to the evening and morning sacrifice where you have a, a sacrifice in the morning at nine o'clock and again at three in the afternoon, and Antiochus stopped those when he desecrated the temple. And so they say instead of 2,300 days, you should divide that by two, because it's talking about two sacrifices each day, so you come up with a little over three years. And they say the 2,300 days uh, refers to 2,300 evenings and mornings. It would be a little over three years. And that was basically the time when Antiochus desecrated temple worship until the time the temple was cleansed and, and, and Judas Maccabeus' forces were able to gain solid control of the temple area and Jerusalem. Either view fits wonderfully and is an amazing prediction, whichever one of those views you would take. Then in verses 15 through 27 of chapter 8, we have the interpretation of Daniel's second vision. The angel Gabriel interprets it for him, and he goes over the things that we had pointed out earlier, like how the ram represents Medo-Persia, and uh, the goat represents Greece, and the conspicuous horn represents the first king of Greece, etc. But I wanted to focus on verses 23 through 25, 
which I believe go into the times of the Antichrist that Brother David had mentioned. And through his policy, let me say that often in the Bible you have something that we call dual fulfillment, where a prophecy has a nearer fulfillment, and that nearer fulfillment suggests fulfillment on a greater scale in the future. And uh, for example, you'll find the expression in the prophets, the day of the Lord. That can sometimes refer to an immediate event in Israel's history, like uh, a great battle. But often the language goes beyond the near fulfillment and talks about the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, and Armageddon, and Christ coming back to defend Israel's armies and uh, set up his kingdom. So you often find this dual fulfillment, and I think you might find it in verses 23 through 25. In other words, some of the things that are said would be true if Antiochus IV, but they're even true on a greater scale of the Antichrist when, he'll, when he will come in the future. And it says in verses 23 through 25, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors shall come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Antiochus IV, but even in a greater sense, the future Antichrist. Remember when Jesus quoted from Psalm 41, 9 in the upper room and said, yea, mine own familiar friend, uh, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. David in Psalm 41, 9 was talking about his trusted counselor, Hithophel, who betrayed him, who had eaten at his table as one of his great, greatest confidence. He betrayed him, lifted up his heel against them, enjoyed Absalom's rebellion to kill David. Jesus says there's a greater fulfillment in this in Judas Iscariot, who would get up from the Lord's supper table and go out into the night to betray his Lord. And he says, that applies to me. But there was one part of that verse he didn't quote, and that was, in whom he trusted. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, uh, which did eat of my bread, I felt it up his heel against me, because Christ knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him and therefore never trusted him. Uh, why he chose him is a very interesting question. Maybe that's one night reason he spent all night in prayer at Luke 6 before he chose all 12. But um, uh, Hithophel, David's counselor, who betrayed David, becomes a type of Judas, who betrayed the son of David. And in John 13, 18 and 19, he quotes that passage from Psalm 41, uh, 9, to uh, show that, that Ahithophel is a type of Jesus, uh, Judas, and that he uh, will fulfill this uh, on a greater scale. So you often find dual fulfillment in prophecy where a nearer fulfillment will suggest an even greater fulfillment. And so a lot of this can apply to Antiochus, but on a greater scale, I think, to Antichrist. And then the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Now, in the case of Antichrist, we know the dragon was the power behind the throne who uh, filled the Antichrist. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He will greatly persecute the Jews. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. It says that 
by peace he will destroy many. Antiochus IV sent his general Apollonius with 22,000 men to Jerusalem on a mission of peace. These soldiers went in and out among the Jewish people and were kind and affable. And they disarmed all suspicion among the Jews. Then on the Sabbath, when the Jews were worshiping in their temple, the order was given to slaughter them, and thousands perished. And so this is an example of how Antiochus, by peace, would destroy many. Now, as far as the Antichrist is concerned, we read in Daniel 9.27 that the Antichrist will make a seven-year peace pact with the Jewish people. When the Jews come back to their land to become a nation, but in unbelief, and when the Antichrist becomes the established ruler of a ten-nation revived Roman Empire in the West, he will make a seven-year covenant with the Jewish people and claim to be their Messiah, and they'll worship him. And he'll pretend to be able to protect them. Well, he'll, 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 try, he'll, he'll promise that he'll protect them from the king of the north, Russia, Arab enemies. They'll look to him as their great deliverer. That's one reason why in Ezekiel 38, Israel's picture is the land of unwalled villages. A city in the ancient world without a wall uh, was without defense. You would often have walled cities and then villages around them, and when an enemy threatened, they would all run inside the walls of the city to be protected. That's one reason why it was so important for Nehemiah to get those walls built after they had been lying desolate after the return from captivity for almost 100 years. But uh, I believe that that passage in Ezekiel 38 about Israel being the land of unwalled villages is talking about the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation when they're trusting the Antichrist to protect them and they let their defenses down and falsely trust. But then in the midpoint, he's going to break his covenant and bitterly turn on them and persecute them and slaughter them. But it will look in Daniel 9.27 like this new leader in the West has a solution to world peace and has a solution to the Mideast peace crisis. A solution to the Middle East crisis, finally, but only seemingly. First Thessalonians 5.3 says that uh, when men will say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Antichrist's peace will fall to pieces. When the Lamb opens the first seal in Revelation 6, 1 and 2, you have a white horse and a rider on it going forth, conquering and the conquer. That's an imitation Christ. He has a bow, but no arrows are mentioned, suggesting that initially he will conquer by peaceful diplomacy. He'll claim to have answers and people will look to him. But the rider on the second horse in chapter 6, 3 and 4 it's a red horse, and the rider has a great sword to take peace from the earth. The second horse is war. The Antichrist's peace, Revelation 6, 1 and 2, is going to fall to pieces, Revelation 6, 3 and 4. There could be no true peace without the Prince of Peace. That will certainly be true in the millennium, and it concerns our personal peace right now in this church age. Before our Lord left this earth, he made out, as it were, his last will and testament. 
he commended his soul to the Father. His body he left to Joseph of Arimathea to be decently buried. His clothes he gave to the soldiers. His precious mother he committed into the care of John. But what should he give to his dear disciples who had left all to follow him? Silver and gold had he none, but he gave unto them and unto us that which is infinitely better, his peace, saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As we come into chapter 9, we have Daniel's prayer of confession for Israel's sin and Gabriel's revelation of the 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel's prayer of confession for Israel's sins and Gabriel's revelation of the 70 weeks prophecy. As Daniel is studying his Old Testament, he comes across passages in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, 29, 10. It says, Israel will be desolated and in captivity for 70 years. But at the end of the 70 years, God will restore it to the land. And as Daniel's burdened about the sins that sent Israel into the Babylonian captivity and longs to see Israel come back to the land. And now with the Persians having just defeated the Babylonians, uh, it seems to Daniel that Israel's on the very brink of history, that it's about time they should come back. The 70 years is drawing to a quick close. And so he prays that God would forgive Israel for all of her sins and restore her. And that goes through verse 19. And then Gabriel is sent from heaven, flying swiftly, to tell him, man greatly beloved of God, no one understand what I'm about to tell you. God will answer the prayer and Israel will be restored. The 70 years will be complete. But Daniel says in the near future, there'll be another multiple of 70, 70 weeks of years, and God will test Israel again. And at the end of those 70 weeks of years or 490 years, God will bring an everlasting righteousness, uh, anoint the most holy place, uh, fulfill prophecy. A lot of great things will happen at the second coming of Christ at the end of those 70 weeks but there'll be a lot of suffering before then, especially in the 70th week. That's a quick summary of the chapter. Sir Isaac Newton said that he would take up a telescope and look at the nearest star, but he could put the telescope down, get down on his knees, and penetrate the outer heavens to the very throne of God. That's what prayer does. And that's what Jesus' work on the cross made possible for us, that now we can come boldly unto the throne of grace and find uh, grace and help in time of need. And uh, that's wonderful. We have access. Jesus made it possible for us to have a welcome into the very throne room of God and uh, confide in God and call him Father. We were made nigh by the blood of the cross. We have in verses 1 and 2 the occasion of Daniel's third vision in chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hashuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Evidently moved by Darius's victory, Daniel searched the scriptures to understand the events of which he was a vital part. He understood that Darius's victory meant that the termination of the 70-year captivity was near. Thus, these significant events became even more momentous to Daniel. He realizes that Israel is on the brink of history, and he claims God's word in his prayer. You said in your word, God, Israel would return after 70 years, you promised. And now please, Lord, fulfill your word. It reminds me of of David's prayer in 2 Samuel 7. David wanted to build God a house, but God said for Nathan, you can't do it. Your son Solomon will, but I've got some wonderful news for you. I'm going to build you a house. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And through Messiah, Messiah, the son of David, God will give David an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne, and an everlasting seed. David is overwhelmed, and in the second half of the chapter, he says, God, please, according to your word, make it happen. And in that context, we read chapter 7, verse 25. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, I love this, (laughs) establish it forever and do as thou hast said. God loves it when a child of God places his finger on this or that radiant promise of scripture and cries out in faith believing, do as thou hast said, establish thy word. And I believe God in heaven, when he sees a saint do that, says in so many words, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor. F.B. Meyer says, whenever God gives you a promise to claim in the book, put your finger upon it and say in the words of Isaiah 9, 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, we have Daniel's prayer in verses 3 through 19 And you'll see that one of the key notes is, in all that's happened, you're righteous, Lord. And another key note is that if there's any blame, we deserve it all. It makes me think of that hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, Two Wonders I Confess, the wonder of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. You see, whenever you have God on the throne and you on your face. That's the way it should be. And uh, God's on the throne in this prayer and Daniel's on his face. God's righteous, his people have sinned, but God is showing mercy. There are four recurring themes in Daniel's prayer. Israel's rebellious attitude to the law and the prophets. Some of these things have added to the syllabus since I made it up, so feel free to uh, write down some extra notes. One of the themes in this prayer is Israel's rebellious attitude to, to the law and to the prophets, to the Lord's righteousness and judgment. Israel's rebellious attitude to the law and the prophets or to the Old Testament, the Lord's righteousness in judgment, The fulfillment of the curses 
that God said in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 would be fulfilled if they persisted in disobedience. And the hope of renewal because of God's mercy and grace. Israel's rebellious attitude, the Lord's righteousness and judgment, the fulfillment of the curse. If you disobey me, said God, all these curses will follow you and overtake you. And the hope of renewal through the divine mercy and grace. In Daniel 9.12, Daniel makes the interesting point in his prayer concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in, AD, in 586 B.C. He says, under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. I can't think of a greater national catastrophe in the history of the world up to this time. And you see that in Jeremiah's Lamentations when he laments over the fall of Jerusalem. And he says that, is there anything to compare it to? Notice Lamentations 2.13. What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee, that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea, who can heal thee? And then a verse in Lamentations 1.12. It's hard to read this without thinking of Jesus on Calvary. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord have afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah laments, and Jerusalem is poetically personified as saying, has anything like what's happened to me ever happened to anybody has anything been this bad? But my thinking goes to Isaiah 53. <laughs> Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. As a lamb led to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. What could equal what Jerusalem went through when the Babylonians destroyed her? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and go to Calvary. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. In 9.13, as he's praying, he says, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. We cannot understand his truth until we turn from our iniquities. We cannot take hold of his truth until we turn loose of our transgressions. Billy Sunday said, The Bible will always be full of things you cannot understand as long as you will not live according to those you can understand. <laughs> there is a great connection between repentance and getting right with God and being able to better appreciate what this book says. 
And then in verses 15 through 19, we, he, he gives a petition that God would wonderfully restore and be merciful. Notice in verses 17 and 19. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. He sometimes seems to deny us, says F.B. Meyer, that he may draw us out in supplication. This is an awesome prayer. And in verses 20 through 27, we have the response of the Lord to that prayer. First, we have the mission of Gabriel in response to Daniel's prayer in verses 20 through 23. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, in the very midst of his praying, the answer comes. From the very beginning of his prayer, God sent the answer from heaven. We read in Genesis 24, 15, in connection with the servant going to seek a bride for Isaac and going to the family homeland in northern Mesopotamia. We read that, and it came to pass while I was still speaking, that behold, there came Rebecca. The answer to his prayer was right on the way even as he was asking God to send them the right person. It makes me think of Isaiah 65, 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Howard Hendricks tells the story that when Dallas Theological Seminary was formed in 1924, there was a great financial crisis and uh, the school owed a lot of money and the creditors wanted their money and the bank was going to foreclose on 12 noon of a certain day. President Schaefer and other members of the board gathered together that morning in the president's office for a prayer meeting. And uh, when it came turn for Dr. Harry Ironside to pray, he prayed in his candid and colorful way, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, would you sell them and we should sell some of them and send the seminary the money? <laughs> well, as the prayer meeting was going on, this man with a tall hat and boots, um, a tall Texan, walked into the president's secretary's office and he said, I just tried to sell a cattle load of, uh, of cattle uh, down in Fort Worth, but the deal didn't go through. And he said, uh, I don't know whether you need it or not, but uh, I decided to give the money to the seminary. Here it is. The secretary, knowing something of the urgency of the hour, went up to the president's office and timidly tapped on the door. Dr. Schaefer answered it, and his secretary handed him the check. And when he looked, it was for the exact amount of what was due. And then he noticed the name of the cattleman on the signature line. 
And he turned and said to Dr. Ironside, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> While they are yet calling, I will answer. And uh, we see that God does that in Daniel's case. Now, if the Lord is answering while we are asking, then we should be thanking him for the answer while we're asking. As Philippians 4, 6 says, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Now, it's Gabriel who brings this message. The very same angel who revealed the 70 weeks to Daniel, Daniel 9, revealed the fullness of time to Mary in Luke 1. The very angel who revealed the 70 weeks to Daniel in chapter 9, which talked about when Messiah would come, was the same angel that revealed Messiah's coming in the fullness of time to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And when God sent him, it says he flew swiftly. Our imagination is staggered by the possibilities of angelic movement. Through possibly trillions of miles within minutes, non-glorified man is fantastically limited in the physical universe, even in the so-called space age. By the grace of God, glorified man in Christ will someday be higher than the angels. If I don't misread the New Testament, when Christ comes to rapture his church and take us through, I believe, trillions of light years through space to the third heaven, my impression is it won't take long to get there at all. Does that mean that we'll be traveling at speeds that are so great that it's just hard to imagine? Or could it be that while we're on the way, the Lord will snap his fingers and in Christ, we certainly can't do it outside of Christ. Could we transcend space and actually be in heaven without any awareness of passing through the trillions of miles intervening? I'm not exactly sure what John 6:21 means. Jesus was walking on the water and uh, they invited him to come into the boat. And it says in John 6:21, then they willingly... Uh, welcomed him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Could they have been in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, some seven miles wide at its widest point? And when Jesus got into the boat, they were immediately at land without passing through the intervening water? Does it mean they were so taken up with Jesus the time flew by and they were there before they knew it? Maybe, I'm not sure, but... I do believe that the raptured church will be in heaven in no time flat, and uh, it'll be very, very exciting. Daniel's called by Gabriel in our passage, a man greatly beloved. That's wonderful to know that in heaven you're thought of as greatly beloved. But that's true of every one of the bride of Christ in this church age. Ephesians 1.6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath graced us or accepted us in the beloved. Singular in the Greek, the beloved one, Christ. Nearer to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son I'm as near as he. Dearer to God, dearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son I'm as dear as he. Wow. It says that the angel Gabriel came to him around the time of the evening sacrifice, three o'clock in the afternoon. 
Now, while Daniel was in Babylon and there was no evening sacrifice, the temple wasn't rebuilt yet, yet he still loved to pray to God about that time and think of the evening sacrifice and uh, how the sweet-smelling incense would rise on the altar of incense. And the psalmist is referring to this in Psalm 141 too, when he says, let my prayer be as the setting forth of incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, God makes the point, I want you to understand what I'm about to do. Greatly beloved man of God, I want you to really consider this and understand. God loves to reveal great truth to his beloved, to people he greatly loves. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. Psalm 25 and verse 14. You see, while God has no favorites, he does have his intimates to whom he loves to bear his soul and open up to and share. Like he did with Abraham in chapter 18. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham will surely. And uh, so it's so important that we walk with God that uh, we might be one of his intimates that he loves to open up to and share with. And uh, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. He promises the church at Pergamos that he will give them to eat of the hidden manna and give them a white stone. And in that stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, the message of Gabriel is given in verses 24 through 27. It's the famous 70 weeks prophecy. Israel has been called God's time clock. You can pretty well know what's happening in the world in terms of where Israel's at in our history. And the 70 weeks prophecy has been called the backbone of Bible chronology. It gives a chronological framework for many of the prophecies in the Old and New Testament. Again, I have gotten a lot out of Dr. Coles's prophetic outline. Dr. Coles points out that the 70 weeks prophecy is given to thy people, thy holy city. It's given to Daniel's people, the Jews. It's given to Jerusalem. It's about the temple. Now, Dr. Coles pointed out that in order for this to be fulfilled, after centuries of not having a homeland, on May 17, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. And then in the Six-Day War of June 5 through 10, 1967, she recaptures Old Jerusalem and the temples now within her possession. And so I believe we're seeing a great buildup. Dr. Cole says, so on May 17, 1948, when Israel became a nation, look out. And in 1967, when she got possession of the Temple Mount, he said, look up, <laughs> we're close. I believe we're getting close. And uh, this leads us to one of the most amazing prophecies in all the Bible, the 70 weeks prophecy in verses 24 through 27. I'd like to make a statement that is very meaningful and I'd like to ask you to think about it. The 70 years pointed Israel to her God. 
The 70 weeks points Israel to her Messiah. Let me run that by you again. The 70 years pointed Israel to her God. The 70 weeks of years will point Israel to her Messiah. What am I trying to say? How did the 70 years point Israel to her God, the 70 years captivity? We, we don't fully know why, but Israel had a sin before the exile that she just kept falling back into and she seemed that she couldn't be cured from. On the eve of the exile, Jeremiah cries out in chapter 2 and says, According to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Will a nation forsake their gods that are no gods? But my people have forsaken and exchanged their glory for what doesn't profit. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the one true God. And they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, false gods that can hold no water. Be astonished at this. Be horribly afraid, ye heavens. Imagine. It just seemed like whatever God tried to do, idolatry was ingrained in the nation. And that sin led them into Babylon captivity. Now, one of the most interesting questions in history is what brought this about? But however you account for it, when Israel came back from the Babylonian captivity, she worshiped one God. She was monotheistic. In spite of all the problems she had, she, at the end of the Old Testament, was not worshiping idols from other nations. In that sense, the 70 years pointed Israel to her God. And when Israel goes through the 70 weeks of years, she will be pointed to her Messiah. In the words of Zechariah, she shall look upon him whom she's pierced and mourn for him. And then shall a fountain for sin and uncleanness be opened up into the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.